You all got your Bibles? Okay. So I'm not going to have you turn to Matthew 28. I'm just going to read it. What I will have you do is turn to Matthew 5. Okay. So while you're turning to Matthew 5, I will read Matthew 28 just to get it fresh in your mind. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now in Matthew 5, this will be our, our anchor text for today. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except it be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So let's, let's pray over this word that we've just heard. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for your holy word. We ask you now to do a, a miracle in our hearts, Lord, that we may receive this word with humility that it may spur us on to good and better works. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. <clears throat> Over the last few weeks, <laughs> I say few, 12, 11, 11 weeks, 10 weeks, we have been talking about how we are sent. We're a sent church uh, made up of sent people who have been sent into the world to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the lost. Um, someone delivered the gospel to you, and aren't you glad that they did? Amen. It then became your mission, whether you accepted it or not, it became your mission as instructed by Christ our Lord to do the same for others, to go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them as He commanded. Amen. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about one of the great problems that face Christians on this mission was that because of our own indifference, I, I called it Christian blindness, we don't see the harvest. We don't see the loss because we get too caught up in our own, uh, our own issues, our own, our own daily lives, and so we don't, we don't notice the harvest. We don't have compassion. We don't care. To put it simply, we don't bring in the harvest because we can't see the harvest. And then last week we talked about uh, how to address that problem through uh, joy-fueled and joy-enabled compassion by looking to our salvation and to our Savior. So let's, let's just say, for instance, let's, let's just put a check mark in that box and say we've got that one ticked, all right? We've, we're, we've got joy-fueled, joy-enabled compassion, and we see the harvest, we see that the field is white, look at all those people that are lost, I can see them, and I have a desire to go and get them. And we've moved with compassion to do something, to witness, to at least start the conversation, to do something. Well, you know what? There's a, another problem in this equation. 
There's another side to this coin, if you will. Problem number one, we don't, we don't see the harvest for lack of compassion, right? There's another side of that. Problem number two, they don't see us, mainly because we often look too much like they do. Why in the world would they want what we have if it doesn't look any different than what they've already got? Oh, it's going to feel like that today, isn't it? (laughs) This morning, I want to address the subject of Christian camouflage. Christian camouflage. So in this text, I see a warning against two wicked paths that Christians are tempted to follow. Now, they are wicked, so they are both paths of error, and they can and do lead us to destruction. And yes, that means even for the believer. And yes, that means that there are dangers for the soul of the believer. Why else do you think we find so many warnings in the Scripture against dangers for the believer? Consider that nearly all of Paul's letters, with all the warnings and all the corrections that he wrote, were written to the churches. They were written to believers who are Christian believers. Why would he warn them if there weren't dangers for the Christian soul? Which is a strong... It's something to think about for those people who believe in eternal security. That absolute, once saved, always saved argument. Okay? Now, it's, we're not gonna, I'm not going to wade down those waters. If you want to have that discussion, I'm glad to. But um, I shouldn't have opened that can of worms. Because now I feel like I've got to address it, but I don't have time for it. I don't have time. So let's, let's just move on. If you want to have that discussion, I'll have it with you. Okay? All right. Let's, uh, let's get to it. God is gracious to preserve and protect us. Let me say that about His security in our salvation. He is gracious to preserve and protect us in our salvation. One of the means of that preservation and protection is the word that he has given us, the good counsel, the wise counsel he has given us in his word, which is why we ought to read it and know it. All right? So, two dangers... Two paths that we must be careful to avoid. These are paths that keep us hidden from the world. They prevent us from doing the work that Christ has called us to do. They are certainly not the only paths of error that Christians can find themselves straying down. But these are at least the two that have been made apparent to me from this passage in Matthew 5. Danger number one. We choose relevance or to pursue relevance over righteousness. In our godly desire to reach people on their level or to try to fit in or we try to tailor the message, we try to uh, tailor the image or the presentation, the administration and all of that to make ourselves more relevant or more relatable. And what happens is that the prize then becomes the attraction or the likes, or the followers, rather than the Christ-likeness. You see it in when we try to fill the pews, rather than make disciples. There's a difference between filling the building and building the church. Okay? 
Put it the way Jesus did, he said, we lose our saltiness. We lose our flavor. And he's specifically talking... Now, some people try to preach this text. They try to talk about the preservation value of salt. That's not what he said. When salt loses its taste, it's the flavor of the... Not the preservation, it's the flavor of the salt. You have heard it said, if I can quote my Lord, you have heard it said, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. But I say, you have heard it said, but I say... I say a little salt seasons the whole dish. All right? He's talking about the flavor of the salt. Did you know that one Christian person in a group of people can change the dynamic of the whole group? I mean, it really can. One Christian attitude can change the dynamic of the whole group. When they, when they know who you are, when your identity in Christ is no secret to them, they won't cuss in front of you. They're going to act differently in front of you. They'll apologize to you for their behavior when they know they have acted, court, when they, acted outside of the way that they know that you think is wrong. They're going to apologize to you. Do you know that? How many of you have witnessed that? And what do we do? Oh, you don't have to apologize to me. Yeah, please do. You know what's right and what's wrong. Why aren't you acting right? <laughs> so what happens is that in an effort, we, we, we see this two different ways. We try to fit in, right? We try to seek cultural relevance for ourselves. And in a, a missional standpoint, from a, a desire to attract others to the faith, we will water down the gospel, we'll water down the message, and we'll make it more culturally relevant to attract others. So we'll seek relevance over righteousness. We'll trade righteousness for relevance in order to reach others. So what we end up with is a holy pursuit, but an unholy means. A holy pursuit, but an unholy method. God says, I would desire obedience over sacrifice. He wants a pure heart, a right heart. Pursue Him with your heart, and the rest will follow. Amen. We see this kind of thing in uh, attractional churches, seeker-sensitive churches. a huge movement 20 years ago, the seeker-sensitive movement, where churches were uh, really just watering things down and really... Uh, they weren't stressing righteousness and they weren't stressing holiness and they weren't stressing the, the you know, self-sacrifice and the, you know, uh, 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 you know carrying your cross and, 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 and dying to the flesh nature of the gospel. And they're just, hey, come on in, everybody. And, and the gospel is open to the world, but they, there was no, it was a really much a have your cake and eat it too kind of, gospel in order to make it open to everybody. They just wanted everybody and it's all love and everybody just come on in and, and there, was no, there was no sense of, of reverence and holiness for, for the scripture and for the word and for the righteousness that God has called us to. We see it in those kinds of churches. They're more concerned with creating a, a fun, energetic, entertaining <coughs> experience than they are with building real disciples who can weather the real storms, you know, the storms that the world's going to hurl at you. They're more concerned with building this experience than they are with real disciples who know what real joy is or who can handle real temptation. 
I mean, you see this kind of thing even in their own marketing and their own literature, their own uh, outreach programs. You know, I see the signs on the street. Join us for our Sunday worship experience. You see those? Worship experience. And I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong or sinful to call your, your gathering, your weekly gathering, a worship experience. I'm not, I'm not saying that's wrong at all. But it, I, I will admit it does make me a little bit uncomfortable. We come together to worship God. We come together to lift up the name of Jesus. And when we call it a worship experience, when we say come join our worship experience, I believe that at least on a subconscious level, on maybe a, 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 a um, indirect level, we, we make it about us. I want to experience God. God's showing up for me. I believe it changes the directional dynamic of worship. It, it changes it from being Godward to being usward. Amen. You know, do you follow me? So the Christians who are more concerned with relevance are more interested in social justice and social media than they are interested in sanctified truth. And again, it, it's all going to, to gain followers. It's all going to gain uh, to maybe to get the word out. You know, it's in the name of getting the word out. That's, that's a holy pursuit through unholy means. It's positive. Sure. I mean, you'll build churches on that. It's a positive message. You'll get a lot of followers that way. Um, it's uplifting, but it isn't gospel. It may be helpful, but it isn't gospel. It may help you to live your best life now, but I mean, if you're living your, your best life now, you're going to have a really hard day on the day of judgment Amen. because you've got an eternity and that's not, I mean, if your best life now, then eternity is going to be a disappointment Amen. for you. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? You get it? Okay. What happens is that people, uh, the people, they embrace a more attractive more relevant gospel in order to appeal to a broader audience on the one side. So we, we want to get this message out to as many people as we can, so we attract this. We do this relevance. We want to water things down. We want to be culturally relevant and sensitive and all that stuff. And so we're going to appeal to this broader audience. We're going to ignore some of these more difficult issues in the gospel, these more hardline issues in the gospel. So that's on the one side. On the other side, we're going to ignore this stuff because I want it to be more comfortable for me. I don't want to die to the flesh. I, don't, I want to have my cake and eat it too. This, I want to be able to have this Jesus saves thing. Um, I can have you know, the best of both worlds, so to speak. And the thing is, if, if they would only embrace the true liberty that comes in Jesus Christ... And by living in between, they don't realize what bondage they really are in. And that's, what, that's what's so fascinating about it. There was an article in the Spectator magazine just a few days ago that's written by a non-believer about this very thing. And I find it fascinating and at the same time totally embarrassing that non-Christians, heathens who are standing on the outside of the church looking in are the ones who seem to have the most clear views of what's going on inside the church. Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, this, this man, his name is Ben, ben Sixsmith. He was writing about celebrity pastors. And uh, he spent much of the article talking about how it always seemed like they just adopted whatever worldly position or concern that seems to be going on at the time, and they just added a twist of Christianity. You know, take whatever worldly thing is going on, whatever thing that the Bible would normally kind of stand against, like, like uh, you know, corrupt capitalism, or this, pick, a, pick a far, uh, you know, uh, social justice issues, far right, left-wing social justice issue, or, or right-wing issue, you know, and, and that, that, that the Bible would normally stand against, and just add a twist of Christianity to it, and, and that's what he says that he sees from the outside looking in. And he mentioned several uh, prominent pastors, you know. He said they, they act like Hollywood elites and rock stars. They, they wear their $1,000 shoes and their little gold crosses, and they're posting on social media with, you know, their shirts unbuttoned down to here with their, you know, their tan and all that stuff. You can't, you can't tell them apart from the rest of the world. They look, they look just like everybody else. And... Uh, uh, several people that he mentioned um, in their pet projects, their real estate deals, social justice agendas, just a twist of Christianity. So as he saw it, he said it's basically business as usual with just a little Jesus thrown in here and there. And so he wrote, he said, so if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, then why become Christian? Amen. 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 He said, I'm, I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's really nothing special or inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Amen. Amen. That's right. And so what did I say earlier? You put a, an unapologetic Christian in the room or in a group of people who is unapologetically Christian, it changes the dynamic of the group. And here what we have is he's noticing people who say they're Christian but they're not. They're not living like it. They have lost their saltiness. And he says, it looks like they want to be more like I do than I want to be more like them. Now, I admit, this is on a celebrity scale, so it may be difficult to try to relate to, to what's going on there. It's a celebrity scale. I imagine that there aren't many of you guys who are wearing $1,000 shoes, right? And we're not a church that uh, is focused on creating experiences we never have been. Um, but that doesn't mean that this relevance over righteousness problem does not apply to our own lives. Amen. You know, sometimes we make excuses for the gospel, don't we? Yeah. All of us do. Sometimes we say to ourselves, I'll follow this part because I agree with it. But this over here, this hits a little bit too close to home, maybe. So, you know what? You know, times have changed. So I don't think that really applies anymore. So, I mean, it's not really culturally relevant anymore. <laughs> little by little, we look less like Christ. 
and more like the world. And what happens when we lose our flavor? Amen. What happens when we lose our saltiness? You know, even faithful churches who preach the gospel have not been immune. They haven't. There's a danger in trying to, trying to fit in, really trying to fit in, and not just taking a bold stand and being set apart from the world. Amen. For the last 20 years, churches have been trying to copy the world in its presentation. So hear me, what I'm about to lay out for you. We have built large auditoriums with large stages. We have set lights and sets we have turned off the lights in the auditorium and all the lights are on the stage. We've set up lasers and fog machines. All the action happens up here. It's a concert atmosphere. We've turned the music up so loud outside that you can't hear your neighbors sing. It's dark in the theater, in the congregation. It's a high-quality production that is designed with live TV broadcasts in mind. So for the last 20 years, we have trained people to watch church rather than to come and do church. Amen. Amen. And so now churches all over the world are reeling because no one is coming. The pandemic has sent everyone home and they've decided that they can get everything that, at home that they were getting in person because it all looks the same. We've trained them to do that. And we wonder, why aren't they coming back? Amen. Amen. Why aren't they? Because we trained them that it's the same. We, we've taught them that church isn't congregational, but it's individual. And we did it trying to be relevant trying to look like the world, didn't we? What does Jesus have to say about those Christians who no longer have any flavor? Look at verse 13. He says, If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except that it be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's the same as being lukewarm, isn't it? He said, I would rather you be hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Y'all remember that? Amen. I'd say he feels pretty strongly about it. In my mind, it goes back to, to the commandment not to take the Lord's, Lord God's name in vain. Do y'all remember that commandment? Thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. We all think it's talking about something that we say. But I'm going to tell you, church, that has a lot less to do with what you say and a lot more to do with how you live. Amen. Amen. A lot more to do with how you live. This is about carrying the name of Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. I am carrying his name. I have taken his name and yet not living like one. It would be like my wife taking my name yet not living like she is my wife. Amen. Amen. All right? When you do that, you have taken. When you take his name, I am a Christian, and yet you don't live like one, guess what? You have taken his name in vain, and you have violated the commandment to not take the Lord's name in vain. You have lost your saltiness, 
And what shall we do with someone who has lost their saltiness? It's, there's nothing. We can trample it under the feet. Just toss, ta- toss it out. Yeah, I'm a Christian, right? Why don't you come and follow me as I follow Christ into all kinds of worldly pursuits? That's what we say. That's what we say. Now, I know what all of you are thinking, and you're all thinking about these huge sins, you know, big ones like adultery and drunkenness, all those big sins. But let me tell you, that the biggest and most dangerous sin is idolatry. Now, all sins are deadly. All sins are totally damning before God. But I would tell you that in the Bible, the one that really gets you is idolatry. All right? It's a big one. But you know what? It is also the most subtle and the most hidden sin. Anything that you put before God, before your pursuit of God, is an idol. He commanded you to love Him first and completely. And how many of you are doing that? <laughs> I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm saying that so that you don't just dismiss me. Amen. We've all got some soul searching to do here. Um, how much sin do we explain away as being culturally relevant or situationally relevant rather than pursuing righteousness? In Romans 12 too, Paul said... Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's how we maintain our saltiness, by nonconformity. Dare to be different. It just amazes me why we would think that anyone would want a gospel that looks exactly like they do. The grass is supposed to be greener on the other side, right? If it's not any greener, why would you go to the other side? This is not the chicken crossing the road situation. I've got to move on. Danger number two. Secret salvation. Have you ever heard of such a thing? This is what happens when you hide the light. Secret salvation. In verse 14, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set up on a hill cannot be hidden. And then in verse 15, he said, you, you don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket. Instead, you put it on a stand, and it, it gives light to everybody in the house. In other words, a light is meant to be shown, not hidden. It's, it's meant to be put on display, not undercover. This is the danger that I think traps most of us, at least sometimes. I mean, we may not fall into the whole relevance thing. We may not fall into the losing our saltiness. Some of us may be salty all the time. My wife gets real salty. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm teasing. But I, I think that, that hiding our light, I think this one, if, if it's going to catch us, this is the one that does it. That's why he spends more time talking about it. A light is meant to be shown. The easiest way I can think of to explain this is to say that we tend to live out our Christianity quietly, even secretly. And you, you may feel, it's like, it's like saying this, this is a private thing between me and God, and I get that because it is a, there's an intimacy and there's an openness and a vulnerability 
in your prayer life and in your experience with God because we're laying our sins bare. And so this is something private that I experience with God. So this is a private thing between me and God, and I'll talk about it, but only when it's comfortable and only when it feels safe, right? So I get that. You may feel similarly about your politics. This is a private thing, and I'm only going to discuss it when I feel comfortable, when I feel safe, because if I talk about this in front of the wrong people, I might go outside and find my tires slashed or my windows will be knocked out. That's a very real thing. But your faith, particularly your faith in Jesus Christ, it ought to have a whole lot more bearing on your life than your politics. You ought to have a whole lot more confidence in Christ than in your politics. You ought to be a whole lot more grounded in Christ than in your your politics. And I would say, I'm just going to put this out there, that a lot of us have that backwards. We're a lot more confident in Donald Trump than we are in Jesus Christ. I'm in Northeast Texas, I can say that. If I was in another state, it'd be the other way around. But that's a cry in shame. In John 8, 12, Jesus said that, he said, Again, I spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me has the light of life. We have the light of life, church. This is the light he's talking about in Matthew when he says that we are the light of the world. And most Christians, we just simply, we hide it because they're afraid. We're afraid. And when it's hidden, no one can see the Christians for who they are, who we are in Christ. What do they see? They see some other dude. They see an accountant or a banker or, you know, whatever. They should see Christian. They should see the light of the world. They should see the light of life. It should be written all over your face. The point is that Jesus is making here is that we must live out loud as Christians, openly and notoriously as, as Christians. We must put Christ on display in our lives, but be careful because when we do, we've got to be careful of danger number one of losing our saltiness. The light is about proclaiming the truth. Salt is about living the truth. If we're going to proclaim, proclaim Christ, we also better live Christ. And here's the deal. We're called and commanded to do both. Amen. 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 Look down in verse 16 of Matthew 5. The phrase, he says, so that they may see your good works. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. Now, I want to spend just a few minutes. I want to zero in on that just a few minutes because what Jesus said is about letting your light shine, it tells us something about this phrase that I think brings the whole concept together in a way that maybe you haven't thought about it before. This is usually preached, this phrase, that they may see your good works. This is usually preached... Um, as good deeds or, or doing good to others. And that's, that's fine. This is certainly part of who we are as Christians, right? Com- but here's the thing. Compassion is not uniquely a Christian thing, though. Okay? When, when the world hurts, 
When, when tragedy strikes, when, remember when the levees broke or when the tsunami hit, when the terrorists uh, attacked and the buildings came down and they murdered thousands of people, the whole world stepped in. Everybody dug in deep into their pockets. They got on buses and they, and they went to help Christians and non-Christians, believers and non-believers alike. That's because every last one of us, the the children of God, those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and the children of wrath, those who haven't yet met Christ, those who don't know who He is, all of us are fearfully and wonderfully made in the glorious and beautiful image of God. It's in our DNA. Isn't that cool? So although we are totally condemned because of our sin, and even though we are totally incapable of saving ourselves from from that condemnation, we're totally incapable of righteousness apart from Christ, we are not incapable of basic levels of good, of doing good, especially when it suits us. Okay? especially when it suits us. Jesus said so himself down in verse 47 of Matthew 5. He's talking about loving your enemies. And he says, you know, uh, even the Gentiles know how to love those who love them back. The Gentiles know to do this. They know how to do good when it suits them. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it is, it's completely appropriate to preach this text as an instruction to do good deeds for others. Countless preachers have preached it that way. I have preached it that way. It is right to read it that way. It is right to be challenged by it, to, good de- to do good deeds for others. Absolutely. If you find yourself needing motivation and inspiration to be kind or to go the extra mile for others, you, I'm just not feeling it today, Lord. Just not feeling it. Go back to this text. Refer to Jesus' words. Right here, let your light so shine before others so that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But will you allow me to suggest something a little bit more? Because in a reality where even the wicked know to do good deeds when it suits them, the reality that Jesus has given us, it seems to me that Jesus can't possibly just mean good deeds. He, he, he can't possibly just mean acts of kindness toward others. Oh, he certainly does mean to include those things, but not only those things. Those things aren't uniquely Christian things, you see, because even the non-Christians know to do those things. Do you think every person that gives to the homeless guy is a Christian? No. Good deeds and acts of kindness, are, they won't necessarily cause someone to praise the Father in heaven. Why wouldn't they praise some other God that commanded good deeds or acts of kindness? And when Jesus walked on the earth, there were a pantheon of Roman and Greek gods who commanded good deeds and acts of kindness. Why wouldn't they praise one of them? So any good deed or act of kindness wouldn't necessarily cause him anyone to praise the one true God, the Father in heaven. So it does no good for Jesus just to say, do good deeds, so they'll cause, that will cause him to praise the God in heaven. So can I just tell you that 
Jesus had more in mind here than things like paying it forward or giving money to the guy holding the sign on the street corner. I mean, those are good things that we ought to be doing as Christians anyway, but he wasn't speaking of the occasional. He wasn't speaking about the here and there. He was talking about a whole life approach. And it comes from what he says just before. The key here is let your light shine. Jesus didn't say do good works so that they will see your good works. He said let your light shine. So that they will see your good works. It's natural that if you're, let your, if you're letting your light shine that they will see you doing good works. But there has to be context for the good works. Amen. Amen. You see what I'm saying? There has to be a, a context for the good works that you are, are doing. Why else would they glorify the Father in heaven? This is where the light comes in. Let your light so shine. And where is it supposed to shine? Before others. Amen. It does no good to do good if people don't know why you have done this good. Amen. Amen. Right? Amen. Amen. So you walk up and you give someone 20 bucks for a meal. What good have you done them if you don't tell them why you gave it to them? Right? What good have you done if you don't give them the gospel with it? Why would they glorify God if they don't know where it came from? When we do put, when we do our Christianity, we need to do it in, when we do our good deeds, we need to do it in the context of, of Christianity. That's what he's saying. Why in the world do we put our Christianity in a box? Why do we hide it away? Why do we only bring it out in, in you know, safe seasons like Christmas and Easter or in safe situations? We have missionaries right now who are in hostile areas around the world that are hostile towards the gospel. I mean, they're hostile towards the gospel. And the environment is so hostile and violent towards Christianity that before they go into a city to try to plant gospel seeds, and they're, they're careful about it, they're wise about it, they're not just tempting God and throwing caution to the wind. Before they go into a city to try to plant seeds, to try to start a church or to just seek out someone who, who might believe, before they go in, they dig their own graves because they know this could be a one-way trip. They know that in God's providence, He may call them home. He may call them to be one of the, the many thousands of martyrs who have died on behalf of the gospel. And yet they go for the gospel. Amen. Amen. And I think about these dear saints and their courage and their faith. And I think about all the times that I have hidden that light. Well, that doesn't mean that I have strayed into sinful behavior. But, you know, I just kept quiet. Now, there's wisdom to be used, but we must always remember that we are holding the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gave us those keys. What are those keys? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
We have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And it's ours to open that door for others. We carry the light of life. What a great responsibility he has given us. Do you remember the parable of the talents? Amen. Remember that? What does he do with the one who buries his talent? He casts it into outer darkness. Cast that poor guy. That story does not end well for that guy, does it? That's what I'm saying, and that's what Jesus is warning us against here. These are very dangerous paths for Christians. They're tempting and easy roads to follow for us. It can be socially awkward, and it can be socially easy. <laughs> it's easy to avoid social awkwardness. But man, it's so dangerous. Conform to the world and be relevant, but lose your saltiness. Secret salvation and avoid the awkward situations, but hide the light. Know the truth, but hide the light. These are destructive paths for us, church. Amen. They defile the image of the church. They defile the image of our Savior, and they defile the image of our salvation. They hide what is precious from the world, the world that Christ came to save, the world that He sent us into to be His missionaries. We cannot bring in the harvest if we can't see them because we don't have compassion for them and they won't want anything that we have if it looks just like what they've already got. Amen. All right? Amen. That's it for today. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, I pray that it is light and life to us and that we have been challenged to do good and better. I pray that you protect us as we go. And spur us on to better works, Lord. Let us be light and salt in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.